0: Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witty, and it's just me today, taking you all against the grain. But don't worry, there's still a lot to talk about. There's a ton to catch up on this Monday, as there usually is. We are, of course, going to talk about the horrifying shooting in Buffalo, New York, over the weekend, and that, of course, because this is the United States, was not the only. Uh, Incident of mass murder just this weekend, there was another shooting at a California church that investigators are still trying to get to the bottom of, trying to figure out if that, too, is something that should be called a hate crime. In addition to those conversations, we are going to be talking about the GOP delegation that visited Ukraine over the weekend and whether aid for Ukraine is going to divide the Republican Party, because it's that party that continues to, you know, hold out or or vote against some of these aid packages that make their ways through Congress. Not that that is ever enough votes to slow them down. We are going to talk about the state of regulation of the arms industry. We're going to ask what Boris Johnson can do to solve the mess in Northern Ireland. And that is a very I had to uh, educate myself on exactly what all the hurdles are there to uh, forming a new government and the little Northern Ireland protocol that comes with Brexit. And yeah, this is what happens when you sort of erect a a popsicle stick scaffolding around a, a new trade agreement. It all falls apart when the wrong party gets elected. We are going to talk about Jeff Bezos going after Joe Biden and his disinformation board in my absolute favorite tweet of the weekend. We are going to preview what will be a very serious test for the Durham investigation into the origins of Russiagate as the trial of Clinton attorney Michael Sussman begins today. And, you know, serendipitously we had scheduled a discussion about an incredibly sad report on the state of adolescent mental health. Um, And I say serendipitously because of course we just watched an 18 year old murder 10 people two days ago, you know? And so if this kid, if indeed he was uh, radicalized so intensely, so swiftly, weren't there supposed to be people who, who should have been watching this, right? Which is not to absolve this person of some of, you know, the blame that he should carry, but to say, how did how was he able to do what he did having, you know, barely arrived at the age of majority? We are also going to talk about fast food workers striking. We might get to talk about UFOs a little bit because tomorrow Congress is going to hold its first hearing since the 1960s on UFOs or what they are now called UAPs. Uh, unidentified aerial phenomenon. So we are going to get into all of that, uh, but we're going to jump right in right now with the story that everyone is still talking about. And that, of course, is this um, horrendous crime committed in Buffalo and what might have led to it. We are joined now by John Jeter, author and two-time Pulitzer Prize finalist. He's a former Washington Post bureau chief and an award-winning foreign correspondent. John, thanks for being here.
1: Thank you for having me, Michelle.
0: So, you know, police are calling this a, a hate crime, which it seems like it very clearly was. The, Pretty obvious. Yeah. yeah, and the alleged shooter, I say alleged because he he's pleading not guilty, which must just be a sort of legal tactic, but he had the gun in his hands and was arrested at the site. Uh, this guy, Peyton Gendron, reportedly drove hours to get to this predominantly Black neighborhood, and of the 13 people he shot in this supermarket and the parking lot, 11 were Black. Uh, I think there you know, there's, there's no question this was a hate crime. I wonder if we should also be calling it terrorism.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's any doubt. I mean, the, the, the issue for the United States in particular, and the West uh, in general, is just sort of uh, how do we begin to account for this relationship between the state and its subjects, particularly people of color. That has long been defined by terrorism,
2: mm-hmm. uh,
1: and it seems like if you if you if if we do sort of talk call this terrorism, well then what does that stop, right? And that I mean yeah. in some ways that's what we need. We need that longer conversation about um, you know white supremacy and its uh, role as a pillar in um, Western society, but it, we just can't seem to ha- get over that hump.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And also, you know, I mean, I was saying in our uh, our intro to the show today, we are talking a little bit later in the show about this uh, report of, about rising levels of anxiety, depression, and other mental illnesses among teens. And again, you're looking at a person who is 18 years old. I think there's clearly been some some failure uh, somewhere along the way to identify what he was on a path to. Um, but I also want to talk about. Man, there are some tangled threads here when it comes to what are being reported as this guy's influences, because, well, what we have is two sort of similar ideologies, right, or or identical ideologies that because of the current political state of affairs are actually sort of on opposite sides from each other. And it is very weird. So you have this. He, he was apparently, this is according to this manifesto that seems to be his that he published online. He was uh, very interested in the Christchurch shooter, among others, the Christchurch shooter uh, I think cited Azov as one of his influences. Uh, the Christchurch shooter had some connection with this black sun symbol, a, a Nazi symbol that's been much discussed as it appears on the uh, uniforms and in a lot of the sort of imagery surrounding the Azov battalion in Ukraine. There is a picture floating around that seems to be of this guy, Peyton Gendry, uh, that seems to show him in tactical gear, sporting this this Nazi symbol. So on one hand, you have this Nazi symbol, you have the Christchurch shooter and you have, you know, we cannot deny that this is also a symbol used by neo-Nazi paramilitaries in Ukraine. And then. On the other side, which is not really the other side, you have his apparent absorption of this, uh, you know, what is called replacement theory, this idea that white people in the United States are being deliberately replaced by other races. And now Fox News and Tucker Carlson get dragged into this. Uh, Tucker Carlson has has suggested that Democrats are deliberately trying to replace existing white voters with new immigrant voters. But in this particular manifesto, the, the shooter seems to actually lay into Fox News for not being white supremacist enough. And, you know, in in a sane political system, we would perceive these ideologies as being, you know, extremely similar and on the same team. But right now, because you have the United States in the middle of supporting an army that has incorporated neo-Nazi paramilitary groups into it, you have on one side people saying, look, these Ukrainian chickens are, are coming home to roost. You can't support this ideology abroad and not expect it to manifest domestically. And on the other, you have people saying, this is this is Fox News, this is Tucker Carlson specifically. They are radicalizing people and they need to be shut down. And it's a very, it's a very tangled web, John.
1: Yeah, it really is. And I think it all goes back to, uh, are are increasing, our deepening isolation as Americans, and particularly uh, our young people, and particularly, I think, young white men who are just sort of um, uh, encased or entombed in this Navel gazing web, uh, you know the media doesn't really give them the information for them to make good decisions. Mm-hmm. The schools are rotten and, and the academy is rotten, and so you have people like this young man who I have absolutely no sympathy for, right? Yeah. But we have to understand, you know, this is a, there's a society out there that's producing these people, right? Who just are, you know, what what I guess we would euphemistically called low-information Americans, right, uh, that right. they're not getting the guy, and they're not able to process the information that they do receive. And so, you know, in, in what world does the Azov Battalion become a model for any 18-year-old, right, or, or yeah. uh, the Christ Church student? What world, uh, in what, what world have we produced where that becomes a model for not just him, obviously, but, you know, I, I'm sure he had different influences, but it was the same effect, Roof. What? How do we produce these 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 little monsters among yeah. us, right? When, you know, when I was 18, I was, I was obsessed with girls and, you know, building a life for myself. Right. Yeah. And they they go into the grocery stores and churches and shoot uh, everything that moves. I mean, what produces that? And so we're, you know, we've got, to, and let me say this too about Tucker Carlson, who I've been really giving a lot of thought to. I want to write about him very soon. Mm. Um, I've listened to his show just out of curiosity. And I remember, uh, I had the same thought I had when I, I heard Ronald Reagan when I was 15 years old. And I thought, oh, man, he's good, right? And mm-hmm. Tucker is not as good as Ronald Reagan. He's not. Mm-hmm. doesn't have that same, you know, Ronald Reagan was a child of radio, so he had that rhythm and that cadence and that delivery. And Tucker Carlson doesn't have that. But clearly there's a good writer on his staff where he's a good writer, right? Mm-hmm. But he's a moron, right? He's a <laughs> moron. But the re- the reason he is so dangerous is because we have marginalized all of the radical voices and by radical, I mean people who grasp the problem at its root. Mm-hmm. Those voices have been completely marginalized. So Tucker Carlson becomes really very dangerous because there's no... someone. I was having a conversation the other day with a friend, and we were talking about Tucker Carlson. I said, you know, he reminds me of Ronald Reagan. And he said, no, he reminds me of William F. Buckley. And I mm-hmm. thought, well, that's exactly right. He, he, he is more in line with William F. Buckley. He was a, you know, a journalist and a writer and sort of an intellectual. But the problem is that, unlike William F. Buckley... There's no James Baldwin to sort of refute him now. There's no James Baldwin to debate him and say, no, 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 that's 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 crazy. Right.
0: It is interesting. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting um, uh, phenomenon. Right. This this is the sort of one (laughs) radical sort of plant that has been allowed to grow. And anyone else who could offer sort of an ideological uh, uh, argument to some of Tucker Carlson's uh, ideas has been ruthlessly uh, oppressed, right? And 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 erased from the media discourse to the extent that, you know, if, if you are an anti-imperialist, you know, you, you might be going on Tucker Carlson's show because that is one of the last mainstream platforms where your voices can be aired. You know, Chris Smalls went on Tucker Carlson to talk right. about, uh, and you know, Chris Smalls eventually after he was really winning, Got invited to mainstream shows and was just doing all of them. But yeah, I mean, I I don't know that the solution is don't allow don't allow dangerous ideas to be discussed, but maybe it is to offer, you know, allow real alternatives, uh, some air and some sunshine. Right. So that it is not just this one sort of one radical weed that's allowed to sort of blow in the wind and the other gets stomped out.
1: I would I would even I would even go a step further. I think there should be classes in high schools, at least among seniors, maybe in in classes on rhetoric or public policy. There should be classes taught on Tucker Carlson, right? There should be open (laughs) discussion. No, really, I believe there should be open discussion about what he's saying, because that way you air it out. You can root and he and, and I'll give him this. I will give him this. It's like the old saw about the devil tells just enough truth to confuse you. Yep. Tucker Cross is very good at that. So yep. that's why I think you do have, you know, uh liberals at least, or 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 libertarians maybe, who come on the show, Glenn Greenwald and Jimmy Dore and mm-hmm. people like that who go on and show people who are relatively enlightened, right? Mm-hmm. Right. But, the, but he's the only platform they have because you know you've got Uh, You know, you've got everyone sort of spouting this Ukraine nonsense and gaslighting the the fact that there are, you know, Nazis among uh, the Ukrainian um, defense forces. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and so there's just no there's like you said, there's no air for for different plants to grow. Mm -hmm. No oxygen. Yeah.
0: And it's got to be fair again, like he doesn't he, he, there's no mention of uh, of Tucker Carlson as being a, a, an influence on this guy in his own writing. Right. And I think he said I think he. what I've seen of reports is that he was like, oh, Fox Fox News is bad. There's too many Jews on it or something like that. So, right, you know, right. the leap is one that that people are making because this is a sort of theory that's gotten a little bit of, of lip service from Tucker Carlson in a particular form. But the other question is, you know, how justified are we in drawing connections from these theories to people's actions, right? And how do we decide who is just irredeemably insane and who is radicalized? Because we have had, you know, we had we had a Bernie Sanders fan who stabbed two people on a train, I, I think it was in Oregon a couple years ago, and the guy who shot up the Republican baseball game was a huge Rachel Maddow fan, and that, you know, I think Trump kind of tried to use those to say, look, this is the radical left, you know, causing violence, but that didn't really catch on But I mean, yeah, does anyone who commits a suicide bombing, are they are they insane or are they political? And I I don't know. You know, I don't know that we have really come to a a uniformly applied conclusion about how we how we assess this and how we report on it. You know what I mean? How do we report on the actions of people as as either, you know, someone who was in some kind of mental health crisis or someone who was uh, on a on a particular political trajectory that led clearly to violence?
1: Yeah, I don't think you can you can eliminate completely uh, insanity or evil acts. Right. Mm. But I do think we can we can create a culture that discourages it, that incentivizes uh, a sort of a sort of uh, uh, um, uh, uh, humanistic approach, a humanistic human relationships that are productive and healthy. Uh, you know, we're always going to have, you know, ill people, mentally ill people. But we yeah. have a culture that promotes that kind of illness because mm-hmm. it isolates us. Right. It alienates us from the world and from ourselves and from nature. Right. And, and the discussion I, I saw just as one example, one quick example I mm-hmm. saw was NBC. I can't remember the the, the, the black guy who was the anchor. Uh, and he was talking about the uh, Israeli Defense Forces attacking the funeral of the uh, American Palestinian journalist who was killed by the Israeli defense forces. And he says, uh, you know, chaos in Palestine. I was like, was it it chaos if the Israeli defense forces do attack a funeral? And and he ends by saying, uh, uh, you know, Israel says that they had to respond because the uh, funeral marchers threw rocks at them. Which is just I mean, insane, right? But, yeah. but but it's the it's the conversation that we have, and it, and it, and it's language that's meant to shut down conversation. It's not meant to produce conversation and broaden conversation. It's meant to shut down conversation, and that's what we do, and that's what we produce, and that's why we have people like this young man who went who 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 thought, yeah, it's a good idea to go to go to Buffalo and shoot up a grocery store full of black people. He mm-hmm. thought that was a good idea. What's wrong with our culture that we produce people like this?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And again, you know, we have a report saying there's a uh, mental illness among young people is uh, is really skyrocketing and we don't have enough people to take care of it. And I don't I you know, it's very understandable. There's are coming of age right now. The world is a, a hopeless oh seeming place. The last thing I wanted to ask, John, is just like, what do we, uh, what are we to make of the fact that, you know, both the Christchurch shooter and this guy are are linked, at least you know, uh, well, I think pretty clearly linked, ideologically, symbolically, uh, to the same ideology that we're we're funding in Ukraine right now. Like, how do we, what, what should this tell us something? Should this spur us to some yeah. kind of action?
1: It, it, it should, but again, we're just not having the conversation to, what James Baldwin would say, not every problem that is faced can be solved, but no problem can be solved until it's faced. Mm-hmm. We, we just can't even describe our discontent now. And so we can't, you know, the United States has a long history of siding with Nazis. We did during World War II, there are many scholars yeah. who believe that, that the United States didn't enter the war because we were hoping that the Nazis would defeat communism in uh, the Soviet Union. And that was partly why we were so uh, dilatory in entering the war. So we've got this long relationship. then, of course, after war, you know, we supported uh, Nazi uh, scientists and, and uh, um, uh, you know, so we've got this history. And, but we don't face it. We don't talk about, you know, our, our, our uh, attraction to Nazis, to fascism. To oppression particularly of people of color you know that that the rest mm-hmm. of the world sees israel as an apartheid state that, that that's not hyperbole that is an actual uh term given by human rights organizations to israel right yeah. uh and they see the united states as very differently than we see ourselves so that that's it we can't we can't quite see ourselves we 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 ironically we we we're navel gazers right we're self-absorbed but we're completely not we're, we're not self-aware yeah. And so there's that disconnect that we just can't quite, uh, we don't have the ability for self-examination. And, that's, and it's I uh, think and our media
0: is letting us down. I, we've got to let you go, John. But but I want to tell you one anecdote this morning that, that gripped me. Uh, I you know, I'm, I'm listening to the NPR morning uh, newscast. And of course, they are their their podcast. And of course, they are they're talking about the shooting. And they interviewed one of the people who uh, was yelling when uh, New York uh, Attorney General Letitia Brown came to talk about Buffalo, she, you know, to address people. Uh, she starts talking and people. People start shouting, like, what have you done? You know, we've been asking for gun control, all of this other stuff. So NPR talks to um, one of the people who was uh, protesting, Letitia, Letitia, oh, sorry, Letitia James. Um, right was protesting her appearance. And the man said, you know, I'm, you know, it was a black man. He said, "Uh, you know, I'm I'm reconsidering uh, not just raising my kids in Buffalo, but raising them in the United States at all. The NPR reporter audibly gasped at this. And I was like, (laughs) how out of touch do you have to be that this is the first time you've heard this? I mean, John, I regret that we don't have more time to talk about this, but I really appreciate you coming on. That was John Jeter. Thanks so much. We appreciate it. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witty. now bringing you a conversation about NATO, Ukraine, the beleaguered Kurds somehow getting drawn into this uh, and the impact of the war in Ukraine in Ukraine uh, on arms sales and arms regulations. Joining me for this is Jeremy Kuzmarov. He's managing editor of Covert Action magazine and the author of a number of books on U.S. foreign policy. Jeremy, thanks for being here.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: We've got a couple of um, on the ground updates from the war. The most significant seems to be an agreement to evacuate the wounded from the Azovstal steel factory in Mariupol. If it happens, certainly that's going to be good for the individual soldiers who can now be treated. Uh, I'm wondering if it says anything about the, the progression of the overall war.
2: Um, I don't think necessarily. I mean, that that may be a you know standard thing in wartime, you know, to display some mercy. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think you know the Battle of Mariupol seems to be coming to an end. I mean, there have been tremendous destruction in that city. Uh, you know, the Russians have made gains now. <coughs> the New York Times even admitted this, although you know for months they've been reporting how badly you know russia's faring uh but you know they admitted that russia has gained a lot of territory and that you know seemed to have been a headquarter of the uh, Azov battalion uh there were even you know i was unaware until recently that after the maidan coup in 2014 there had been uprising in mariupol against the post-maidan you know coup government hmm. they were violently suppressed uh uh, so, I mean, I think there were you know, stronger pro-Russian sentiment in that city, uh, maybe than other parts of the country. But, you know, Russia has secured a significant amount of territory right now in eastern Ukraine. We'll see how the fighting goes in, in Donbass. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Russia may be close to achieving some of its war aims. I don't know if that will pretend, though, an end to the conflict.
0: No. And then, you know, just on terms of the, the – Attempts to create some kind of economic consequences for Russia. You know, Renault handed over its operations inside Russia today. McDonald's said it's pulling out of the country, but the EU still hasn't come to an agreement on Russian energy. And the bloc today said... Cutting itself off from Russian energy would just lead to an economic contraction for the rest of the year. And I just I wonder how long you think these these conversations are going to go on. And, and if we will get to, uh, you know, a decision by the European Union that it will tolerate that in order to end its uh, energy imports from Russia.
2: Well, yeah, I think that that may be more rhetoric. I mean, I think you know certain politicians may you know get off or think they're scoring political points by showing how tough they are on Russia or how tough they want to be. But I mean, practically, they're ultimately responsible for governing their own population and trying to improve the quality of life of their own people. And this is you know causing some severe you know, hardship and c- could cause much worse hardship in the future. And the people are really gonna get angry, you know, uh when the you know, gas prices skyrocket and they can't heat their homes, uh uh, you know, when winter comes and uh I mean, you know, the at the pump they're already suffering. So I mean that's only gonna go so far, you know. I mean, if the people are getting unhappier and happier, I mean they're gonna face the threat of, of, of you know, s- you know, growing civil unrest. Uh and ultimately I think they're gonna choose their own people and they're gonna make the practical Decision that they need Russia, and hopefully that might, you know, create an end to the war because the Europeans could uh, be the one to pressure for an end to that conflict and a resumption of a reasonably normal diplomatic relations, which I think is in the best interest of mm-hmm. almost everybody.
0: Yeah, there was some interesting um, a, a story in Politico, the European Politico on uh, European countries, you know, after the U.S. sort of publicly saying what they wanted was a weakened Russia at the end of this. European countries going, I don't know if a huge destabilized neighbor is actually going to be good for us. And so, yeah, there's going to have to be a lot of discussion of like, how uh, how does this come about without, you know, enormously destabilizing both Ukraine, obviously, but also Russia? The other interesting thing that that is happening uh, right now is over the weekend, you had uh, Finland and Sweden uh, announcing more formal intentions to apply for NATO membership. But Turkey is saying it has some doubts and it is grimly comic that somehow the war in Ukraine has created a new avenue by which the Kurds can be victimized because the objection Turkey has uh, that it says anyway is that Finland and Sweden are home to terrorist organizations and among them is the Kurdish Workers' Party or the PKK which is also designated a terrorist group by the U.S. and other countries, but not not Russia, not Switzerland. Belgium has sort of assigned the group a weird status. Um, Turkey has not said it intends to block NATO membership over this. Uh, but I just think I mean, one, it's just like, how do the Kurds end up roped into this mess? And also, you know, highlights that that Turkey right now is really has been um, I think, exercising its power pretty successfully. And I I know, you know, you can't say what it might uh, ask for in return, but I think it is sort of interesting to see what Turkey is doing with its leverage and maybe for some countries look at it as a model.
2: Well, yeah, I think Turkey has emerged stronger under Erdogan, uh, you know, who wants to recreate the Ottoman Empire. I mean, you know, he's a, a dangerous leader in his own right, but uh, on the other hand yeah turkey is you know moving away from the u.s and western orbit i mean in the last few years they had at one point you know were growing much closer to russia and maybe i mean they see which way the winds are blowing uh, the winds are blowing east. I mean, Russia and, and China are becoming more formidable power block, Even as we were just discussing, the Europeans I think understand the importance uh, of trade and, and relations with Russia. Uh, so, I mean, Turk, you know, Turkey, if they're a stronger, more confident nation. They don't want to be just, you know, tied in uh, dependent in any way on the United States or western alliance. They they want to pursue their own interests and they may see more advantage to alliance with Russia and China and ultimately their, you know, policies we're seeing may reflect that.
0: I also want to talk about Mitch McConnell's visit to Ukraine over the weekend. He went with a delegation of Republicans, even as the latest funding for Ukraine is being held up by members of his own party. And I think this is this is sort of interesting. There were 57 House Republicans who voted again against the latest aid package, though, of course, it passed. Uh, There might be 30 Republican senators who vote against it when it comes to the floor this week. And the reason it didn't get a vote last week was Republican Senator Rand Paul. And so I wonder if you think, you know, I think some of these people have, uh, you know, have actual ideological uh, positions on this. I think for others, it is just a, you know, an easy way to be anti-Biden. But I wonder if this is going to become a divisive issue among Republicans, because you have, you know, the the leader of the party in Congress um, championing this this aid bill, trying to get it through. And uh, not insignificant number of uh, his own party members saying, hey, wait a minute, you know, 40 billion dollars is a lot of money. I maybe we should look at what's going on in the United States right now.
2: Yeah, I mean that's interesting. Yeah, and those of us, I mean, I identify more with you know liberalism and uh, I mean the Democratic Party and progressive wing. But I have nobody, you know, on the Ukraine issue, you know, I'm mm-hmm. adamantly against uh, aid to Ukraine. And there's nobody, uh, you know, the Democrats uh, standing up to this policy. Uh, so, you know, where do I go politically? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, as far as the Republican Party, I mean, there is a historical division between, you know, there is a more isolationist wing uh, that, you know, I mean, in theory, the Republican platform is to Promote, you know, small government, lim- limited government, you know, states' rights. Uh, I mean, that's the history of the party. And you have this, you know, isolationist wing. Historically, I mean, there were Republicans uh, like, you know, Senator Robert Taft, uh, Mister Republican back in the day, who, uh, you know, was against huge military budgets in the Cold War and promoted more isolationist uh, foreign policy. So I think, you know, the Rand Paul wing of the party—that's uh, more its lineage. Even Herbert Hoover a pretty strong uh, isolationist you know, in the late 1920s uh, and had warned even against the pacific war and certain policies uh, the u.s government had been pursuing to create conflict with with japan the japanese empire so i think you have that lineage in iran and rand paul mm-hmm. uh, and there are many republican you know the base of the party i think is divided and there are a lot of the part, uh republican like i live uh, in trump country and a lot of them are isolationists they're very weary of foreign intervention money being spent uh toward these you know misconceived foreign adventures uh and they want uh you know more isolationist foreign policy so i think there there's a significant portion of the base that is allied with that more libertarian isolationist wing of the party. And it is a division that has existed for generations now. And, you know, hopefully uh, I, I would support more of the isolate, you know, the Rand Paul types are more in my own camp. So I hope they would prevail at the end. Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, at least that I, I've always said, like it is easier to have a debate and discussion and maybe uh, arrive at some sort of um, reasonable conclusion with someone who is making an argument from uh, a a, a specific and coherent belief system, whether you agree with it or not. It's sort of trying to trying to have a, a fruitful debate with someone who is just sort of blowing in the wind and only reacting against someone is is much more difficult or, and pointless. So, yeah, I mean, it'd be nice if if we were having discussions with isolationists and it, because at least you know where they're coming from and at least, you know, their position is going to stay the same. I also wanted to talk about the nature of our ongoing support for Ukraine. Um, What McConnell had to say after meeting Zelensky is that, you know, America's support for Ukraine's self-defense is not philanthropy. We are defending, you know, it, it has a bearing on America's national security and vital interests. I don't know if anyone who wants Ukraine to be making its own decisions unilaterally is going to be happy to hear that. Um, But uh, he also invokes, you know, promoting stability in Europe. And on that topic, you know, I thought it was interesting and good that we finally had some concern in the mainstream media about where exactly these weapons going to Ukraine might end up. The Washington Post had a story on Friday that quoted an arms control uh, expert as saying it's impossible to keep track not only of where they're all going and who is using them, but how they're being used. Uh, The United States, of course, is saying it's it's vetting all the Ukrainian units that are getting the weapons and Kiev has to sign agreements that won't allow them to be retransferred. But of course, the U.S. itself is violating these retransfer agreements when it sends them these arms. Um, And so I want to ask, do Do we have any sense of of what route these arms might take if they end up leaving Ukraine, or who is most likely to be uh, victimized by resold arms from this war?
2: Well, yeah, I think this is very dangerous. You know, we've seen this in past conflict, like uh, you know Afghanistan where they're just pouring in all this weaponry, and then some of it may end up on the black market, you know, or even the Iraq war. Uh, and I mean, within Ukraine itself, I mean, this kind of reminds me of Syria you know, where they're claiming they wanna arm the moderate rebels, but then, you know, Biden came out uh himself admitted that there are really are no or very few moderate rebels and <laughs> they're really, you know, jihadist extremists. And I mean, if you look at the situation in Ukraine, it's not that different. Now it's the Azov Battalion seems to be a dominant force in the Ukrainian military. All the footage we're getting from Ukraine is from the Azov Battalion. And that's very suspicious uh, right there, even from Buka, not just in Mariupol, but also Bucha and outside Kiev. Uh, the feeds are coming from Azov battalion. And that we know is a more extreme group that uh, seems, you know, I think it's dominated by neo-Nazi elements. Uh, so by implication, much of the arms is is going to those extremists who are the dominant force. And, you know, I think it's just lip service to say, you know, we, uh, by the U.S. government when they say, oh, you know, we want to make sure it gets in the right hand. But who are the right hand if the Azov battalion is a dominant force in the Ukrainian military? Much of the weaponry is going to be going to them, and we know they're committing serious war crimes. There's uh, leaked uh, you know, footage that shows them shooting uh, Russian prisoners uh, when they came off a convoy. They were shooting them in the knees. We know they're carrying out assassinations. Uh, so, you know, and that these are uh, gangs that have committed war crimes in eastern Ukraine for eight years. So. I think this is one reason I'm adamantly against uh, any arms shipment to Ukraine. It's going into uh, very dark forces. And then there's the issue you, r- you raise that the black market, you know, some are going to be sold in the black market, some invariably will be seized by the Russians, and they can use them for their own purposes to kill pro-American forces. So you know, we're, we're in that dangerous turf that we've seen before, uh, sadly we repeat the same history over and over again, just flooding countries with weapons. And it's going to cause serious short and long term. I mean, it's interesting,
0: you know, Congress had a couple of years ago, Congress had banned arms sales to to neo-Nazis in in Ukraine. Right. But of course, I I don't have any uh, expectation that that ban is preventing them from getting American arms. And they're not the only neo-Nazi paramilitary group. And we, of course, have been training them. Um, The other thing is, you know, on the topic of these resale restrictions, uh, as I said, the U.S. bought some helicopters from Russia 10 years ago. It just resold them to Ukraine. That sale, the one from Russia to the U.S., came with a clause saying they were not to be transferred to any third country without the approval of Russia. So Russia gets to say, hey, the U.S. is breaking the law. Um, You know, of course, there are voices that say, look, Russia invaded Ukraine. It lost the right to get mad at this. Uh, and I think whatever side you take, it, it does seem like the violation, like the blatant violation of these weapons contracts erodes the foundation of counter prolifer- proliferation efforts. This is uh, the wording of uh, quotes again from that Washington Post story. And so, you know, when that, that sounds bad. I wonder if there is some justification for being worried about the effect of these sales on the existing regulations of the arms trade. And the only reason I can think that we shouldn't worry is that these regulations are just basically a joke already. Right. And so I'm curious how how robust do you think that regulatory environment actually is? And how much how much does it matter that you have the United States uh, violating it? Is, is it really going to chip away or is it just sort of like this whole thing is puff of dandelion floss anyway?
2: Well, yeah, I think it undercuts the credibility of any laws that do exist. If the U.S. is just bla- brazenly violating it, uh, those standards, you know, lose credibility uh, further. And you know, there's no no accountability. The U.S. could just get a, get away with violating the law uh, without any sanction or punishment, and that's very disturbing. And you know, the United States is the leading arms uh, s- uh, seller in the world, has been for a long time, and I think. It's the leading arm seller by far, Uh, and those regulations, you know, are very important. I mean, that's the only, uh, you know, safeguard that we have. Uh, So if those if those norms have, you know, are just meaningless and have no weight behind them, it's just the law of the jungle. And that's what we're seeing. And, you know, might makes right. And look what it's doing to the world. You know, the world is replete with uh, conflicts and violence. And you know, countries are, are uh, mired in poverty, yet they have all these advanced weaponries, uh, and it's just a horror show. I mean, and mm-hmm. this could be, leading, uh, you know, as we know, to even the nuclear conflict. And you know, they've been tearing up our It goes with the tearing up of arm control agreement. The Trump administration tore up the INF treaty, which had been a, a very good treaty, organized in the late '80s to regulate nuclear weapons. Those mm-hmm. are being torn up too. And, you know, Eisenhower gave the best farewell address of any American president when he warned of the military industrial complex and said, you know, every dollar that goes in the arms is taking dollars away from a hungry child, from a school. And that's the world we're living in right now, where our schools are underfunded. You know, I can go on about this.
0: A little too on the nose in the U.S. with the, you know, infant uh, formula shortage right now uh yeah so exactly i, I it's just the, the imagery is it's too good you if you wrote it for a, a movie they would say nah look make it a little bit less exact the other thing i want to ask is um you know a, a sort of uh, Escalation of of a sort in this war is that Russia has said one of its citizens was killed and several wounded inside Russia uh, in a cross border attack from Ukraine. Obviously, this this loss of life uh, is is minimal in comparison to the loss of civilian life in Ukraine, and, and we've had Ukraine, you know, begin the process of war crimes trials for Russian soldiers accused of committing more crimes in the prosecution of this war. And while, you know, I'm not sure how fair you can expect those trials to be inside Ukraine at this moment, I, I have no doubt that at least some of those reports are true. But you know, the, the loss of life inside Russia would seem to mark a little bit of a change in this conflict. And I wonder what you think the impact could be if this continues. Do you think it you know, has the potential to just harden resolve or do you think it has the potential to make this an increasingly unpopular project within Russia?
2: Uh, I think it will harden resolve. Uh, I think the Russians' uh, population is generally supporting the war. I think obviously some of that may have to do with the censorship of the media and kind of one-sided view that the Russians may uh, be uh, subjected to. But nevertheless, Russia has some serious and legitimate grievances uh, in this conflict. Uh, They understand the uh, suffering of the population of eastern Ukraine for years. Uh, They have a real grudge against the west and ukrainian government so if ukrainian government is now killing russians within russia i think it's just going to harden their resolve to uh, fight on and to finish the conflict on their turn and, and to not you know acquiesce or to surrender uh and you know russia doesn't want to be bullied they have been bullied in the past. Uh, they know, you know, the West has designs on, on Russia, and they know how Ukraine is being used as a kind of proxy and lever uh, to advance Western interests and power. And they're not going to stand up for that. And they're rallying behind Putin. The public uh, opinion polls show that Putin's popularity has only increased since the war started. And I think they want to finish the war on Russian terms. And that, I think, attitude will continue. And that's why the the U.S. strategy of of using this war and trying to extend it to try and weaken uh, Russia and institute regime change is ultimately a futile and failed strategy. And -hmm. that's why it's a waste of money. All that billions uh, that the U.S. government pouring into Ukraine should be spent on improving life in America and American schools, et cetera.
0: Mm -hmm. That was author Jeremy Kuzmarov, managing editor of Covert Action magazine. Jeremy, thanks so much for being here.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witty here to talk about global supply lines, the Chinese economy and the future of Brexit. Joining me for this is author and economist John Ross. He's a senior fellow of the Cheongyang Institute at Renmin University of China. John, thanks for being here.
3: Pleased to be here again.
0: So I had plans to talk to you about other things, but I want to start um, actually in Northern Ireland because UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson is headed there today to try to manage a very sticky situation that's created by the government that was voted in in the province last week and also by the weird Northern Ireland protocol that was created when the UK split from the EU. We we spoke on the show about Sinn Féin's victory in the election uh, last week, uh, but now the second place unionist party, the DUP, will not join the government until this protocol that was set up uh, to sort of facilitate Brexit with Northern Ireland and established some checks between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK. The DUP wants it to be abolished. Sinn Féin is fine with the protocol, but it can't start exercising executive power, as I understand it, because there's a power-sharing agreement in Northern Ireland that means one minister must be a nationalist and the other one a unionist. And so I am wondering what Boris Johnson can do here. And also, I don't know. I mean, I don't want to... um, Disparage some of these agreements from the '90s that helped put an end to the the troubles and the violence that Ireland was was uh, experiencing, but does it speak to the weirdness of this power sharing agreement as much as it does to the Northern Ireland Brexit protocol?
3: No, the, the core of the matter is two things. One is the Unionists, um, that is the party which came second, Democratic Unionist Party, wants to try to overrule in the first place, the majority of the people, even in the north of Ireland, because yeah. the majority the majority of people who are elected to the Assembly support the protocol um, with the European Union. So therefore, what the, the, the DUP is demanding is that uh, the British government intervene in order to overturn the uh, wishes of the majority of the people who live in the north of Ireland. So that's mm-hmm. the first factor. The second factor is, of course, that um, Johnson never had any intention of living up to an international treaty. He, he, he agreed to the protocol. The king about the protocol is it means that there's a trade border mm-hmm. uh, within Britain between Great Britain and the north of Ireland. Uh, he knew that perfectly well. He signed up to it, but he never had any intention of implementing it mm-hmm. uh, because he thinks he can get away with, uh, you know, lying, cheating, uh, etc., cetera. Et cetera. <laughs> yes. But he's instead he's now got some really rather tough opponents. He's got the European Union, which says, "Fine, you signed this, and we signed this. We're going to stick to it." Secondly, instead it it's not very good for him with the United States. Because of course there is a very big um, Irish uh, community of Irish descent in the United States, uh, which doesn't like uh, this messing around <laughs> with the situation at all. So he's he's got himself into um, a bit of a mess, and it's going to be a rather um, explosive developments. So I mean, not fortunately not by violence, I mean political yeah. explosive developments there.
0: Yeah. What, if, what, what is this protocol? It's sort of like a it's like a half border. I mean, I know the DUP is upset about it because it creates some kind of border between um, Northern Ireland and the rest of Great Britain, as you say. But it's like not a full trade border. Right. It's just a sort of it's a sort of half measure that no nobody really likes anymore.
3: No, on the contrary, the majority of people like it. Oh, in, right. Of course. Yeah. The majority of the people in the North of Ireland, the British government doesn't like it, mm-hmm. and the Unionists don't like it. Yeah, what it is, it's very simple. When Britain left the European Union, that means that there is a different tariff regime in Britain and in the, uh, and in the European Union, or there could be. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is certainly a different regulatory regime. Health and safety standards, or food regulation standards are, are, are going to be different. Therefore, there has to be a border somewhere. Yeah. between the European Union and Britain. You can't escape that. There's two possibilities. One is that it's the border is within Ireland. Right. That is between the north of Ireland and the south. But in that case, this will disrupt the entire Irish economy. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants it, including even the people in the north of Ireland. Mm-hmm. And therefore, everybody agreed that that was excluded. You couldn't have a border in the in in art within Ireland itself, but in that case, the border the trade border has to run down the sea between Britain that is the British mainland and Ireland, there's no other choice. Mm-hmm. So, Johnson wanted to he he all he really wanted to do was to push Brexit over the line, so he didn't care what he signed up to because mm-hmm. he thought he could renegade on it later. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's not so easy as he's finding out, you know, if you the European Union's says, you know, you signed it, it's an international treaty, so we expect you to abide by it.
0: And presumably Johnson's going to be pressuring the DUP to drop this demand to end the protocol and just enter into government with Sinn Féin.
3: Yes, but he's not going to succeed, in my opinion. Oh, no. I, I mean, because the point is, this, this is a historic process, you understand. I mean, mm-hmm. the whole the whole partition of Ireland in the 1920s was totally artificial anyway, but it was a gigantic example of a gerrymander. Mm-hmm. Which is the British drew the border in such a way as they thought it would guarantee six counties in Ireland would guarantee majority for the union. Mm-hmm. But and at that time, Britain was rather rich, and the south of Ireland was rather poor. Now, the south of Ireland's are r- richer than Britain, so the the living standard in the south of Ireland is better than the living standard in Britain, mm-hmm. uh, and also the um. General development of the situation has meant there's left, less support for uh, the, the Union. So it's not at all safe that there's going to be the Union. I mean, it, it's all going to end up in the reunification of Ireland. Right. I mean, the struggle for reunification of, of, of Ireland against Britain has been going on for 900 years. Mm-hmm. So um, it, it advances rather slowly, but it advances rather remorselessly. Mm-hmm. So this fact was that the Unionists assumed that they would always have a majority in the north of Ireland, and therefore they would have the first minister. But instead, they're all fractured because they they can't agree on Brexit. Uh, they can't agree. A lot of them are homophobes uh, against um, you know against abortion, etc., uh, etc. Cetera, et cetera. And others are not so homophobic, not so against abortion. Therefore, the unionist parties have split. As a result of which, Sinn Fein has become the largest party there. So it's a big mess for the unionists.
0: It'll be interesting to see what what he's able to do, if anything. All right, let's let's uh, talk a little bit about the global economy. Some, something less complicated. Uh, the Wall Street Journal has been making much of this uh, new concept of uh, the new offshoring, friend shoring. Uh, This story in The Wall Street Journal from last week, but this is also something Janet Yellen has given voice to in the last month. This story calls it a new kind of global trade that confines commerce to a circle of trusted nations. And it tells us U.S. officials and their allies in Europe, Asia and the Pacific are promoting and funding new production and trading channels for essential goods that run through friendly nations. So this is supposed to help good countries. That is the implication. Uh, reduce their reliance on countries that are described as having autocratic governments and non-market economies. And, you know, namely China and Russia. There are others. Critics say the practice will hurt poor countries and hurt the global economy in general. And that actually friend shoring is just more offshoring and not the uh, investment in domestic production that we need. I wonder. I wonder what you make of this. If this is just a sign that a, a more segregated global economy is to come, or is it even possible to to get around China, for example?
3: No, it's not going to work. I mean, the because what it will do is it will cut the living standards. Not merely the global south. No, nobody in the global south wants to go along with this. And right. don't forget, that in real terms, now the global South is the majority of the world economy. It's not a current exchange rate, although it's getting close to it even there. But but China has China has is the largest trading partner now for far more countries than the United States is, and therefore they don't want to go along with it. Why do they want to? They they can get cheaper goods from. China, why do they want to import more expensive goods from the United States? Right. Apart from the fact that the United States can't even produce a lot of things. I mean, it doesn't even produce a lot of the things that China produces. So the Global South not going to go along with it not not even remotely i mean we could see this over the question of the you know what happened on the vote on the on sanctions on russia over the ukraine war let alone china and this wasn't even against their economic interests the, the overwhelming majority of countries in the world have refused to go along with the us sanctions against russia they're certainly not going to go along with sanctions against china which means that their own living standards are going to be cut and even within the global um, north in the united states and its friends that means that they're going to be people are going to be paying more. The, if you take uh, the already with the tariffs against China, the United States average household is paying several hundred dollars a year more than it needs to, under conditions in which the U.S. Um, real wages are falling due to high inflation. So this is this is a real crackpot um, idea that that is not not going to work, right? Fr- frankly, um, and secondly. You know, this is just an attempt for the U.S. to shore its um, its own economy up. But the U.S. is getting hammered in the economic competition with China. I mean, if we like take the last two years, if you take the two years together, uh, China's economy grew by 10.5 percent and the U.S. economy grew by 2.1 percent. So China's economy grew five times as fast as as the United States. The threat is not that the United States is going to win in a peaceful economic competition. It doesn't stand a chance. Yeah. And therefore, it would only drag other countries down. The, the, the danger is that the US is going to resort to military force to try to overcome its failure in economic competition.
0: Right, because it's obviously this is this is sort of trying to exert political influence. And, hey, if you want to, you know, if you want to support democracy, wink, wink, among us, you have to be part of this this new global protocol. The other question I had is whether this threatens to, you know, if they do try to erect this for a while, does it just sort of accidentally cut out global south countries from, you know, the the benefits they were able to get by being in this supply chain? Well,
3: I don't think they're going to I don't think the global south countries are going to go along with it. Yeah, they'll just say so no. I- so I, so I don't think it will. It won't cut them out because mm. they won't do it. I mean, one or two may want to benefit a little bit from. Doubtless, the United States will have sanctions against China that will divert a tiny little bit of trade. So mm. Vietnam could do quite well, or Bangladesh could be quite well, do quite well. But this is marginal mm-hmm. compared to China. China's exports have been on a big roll, and. Um, and the United States is not capable of deflecting the situation. You know, so it's this is all this is all fantasy. It's not gonna work. Mm-hmm.
0: I want to ask about these uh, sanctions, U.S. sanctions on China that you mentioned. It's interesting that Joe Biden has said he is considering scrapping some of these Trump era sanctions on China in order to combat inflation in the United States. And so I I think it would be interesting to talk about, you know, what that says about our, you know, the U.S.-China trade war that was launched during the Trump administration and uh, what the impact of these sanctions would be on the United States and on China if Joe Biden were to dump them. But we're, we're up against a, a, a break here at the one o'clock hour. So, John, I'll invite you to, uh, to maybe begin and I'll have to cut you off and we can resume this conversation after we take this 1 p.m. break.
3: Yeah, sure. Well, what, 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 it's, what it's going to do on this is, that firstly, the proposal to scrap the tariff sanctions is one of the, one of the few sensible economic things that Biden's proposing at the present time. It would d- indeed immediately cut, uh, it cut inf- inflation in the United States, not not decisively, but, but it would be a benefit uh, thing to do, right? Okay. Um, but the problem is that the the rest of his policy is a great mess. So he's heading for a very bad um, situation when he comes to the midterm elections. That's basically what's going to happen about this. But it's China. China's come through this trade, war. you know, China's won the trade war with the United States. It's not. It's not so even. It would seem- will it win it's already won i mean it's its exports are going up at 20% a year with the beginning of this year um even its um trade with the united states has not been cut significantly mm-hmm. so and it's had therefore the tariffs which are imposed by trump have basically zero effect on on china Great, John. I'm
0: going to I'm going to cut you off there. We'll resume this conversation on the other side of the break. I'm speaking to author and economist John Ross. We'll be continuing this conversation with him on the other side of this break here on Political Misfits. back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with author and economist John Ross, continuing our conversation about, you know, the the end of the U.S.-China trade war, uh, the United States really having lost, and the implications of considering abandoning tariffs that were imposed by Donald Trump uh, in in order to ease inflation here in the United States. Uh, And so I was asking our our guest, John Ross, you know, what, what impact that could have on both economies. And, you know, if, as you say, it would ease inflation in the U.S., I wonder why there isn't more political pressure um, from the Democratic Party, for example, uh, to dump some of these tariffs.
3: There's a consensus which has emerged within the U.S. um, ruling class, political establishment, whatever you want to call it, that their number one priority in the world at the present time is to have a confrontation with China. Right. Their, their Their conclusion is that they've lost economically. Uh, that's a rational thing they can't do if if peaceful economic competition with china between china and the united states continue china will win and therefore the great risk is that the united states thinks therefore in that case we're going to the one area in which we are still uh supreme is military and therefore that the united states decides to attempt to adopt a military solution to this i mean look look mm-hmm. at the present look look at the present situation of the um Two economies. The United States economy actually contracted during the first quarter of this year, and its trade deficit is um, the largest on record, right, on the, on the latest figures. It's expanded greatly, not meaning in absolute terms, but as a percentage of GDP. It's not quite a record as a percentage of GDP, but it is doing that. So in other words, it's it's been uncompetitive, and its economy is slowing down. China is the fastest-growing economy in the world, and it's, um, its exports are absolutely booming, and it's running a huge uh, trade surplus. So, therefore, if this continues, the United States is just it, – it's lost. It's, despite all this guff about how the U.S. economy is you know, the world's most dynamic, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, actually, it's been slowing down for 70 years. But that's a, another question, right? Okay. The United States – if it's peaceful economic competition with China, the United States is going to lose. And therefore, that the big danger, there is a consensus emerging that therefore this must be stopped at all costs, including in Stanley, even if it means war, war over Taiwan, uh, possibly nuclear war. There is a real threat now that has to be discussed that the US is turning from cold war to hot war and that the the events in the Ukraine are just a pre a precursor to this because one of the big uh, things which stops the U.S. launching a hot war is that the one air, one power in the world which matches the United States in nuclear weapons, and if there's going to be a confrontation with China, it's going to become a nuclear confrontation, right? The one which matches the United States is Russia. Yeah. Therefore, there is a... Therefore, there is a view in the United States that Russia has got to be knocked out of the situation first. Um, there's a view in the U.S. ruling circles that Russia has got to be knocked out of the situation first by bleeding it dry or something in, um, in in Ukraine, by having regime change or something like that. And so that China can be isolated and China can then be attacked, including militarily. It's too risky to have a confrontation military confrontation with China in which Russia may decide to join in. So therefore, this is this is the great this great risk. It's that it's the, you know, just it's just lost. The United States has lost. It's
0: yeah. And then what do you do? What do you do to a huge, you know, former empire that is lost? No, it's a it's a frightening, very
3: scary. It's a very scary situation, to be frank. There's yep. a real threat for the first time not of a cold war, but of a hot war launched by the United States. Yeah.
0: Let's talk briefly. I mean, yeah, I, you know, I, I find nothing to, to disagree with there. I just hope that it, I hope that cooler heads sort of manage the U.S. decline. Uh, I want to just before we let you go, just ask you very briefly about um, China's economy. Its National Bureau of Statistics reported, you know, consumer spending, factory output. They were all down in April. Inf- infrastructure investment slowed down. Joblessness increased. This is all, of course, being blamed on China's COVID mitigation plan and the strict lockdowns. Um, I'm wondering, you know, the, the scale of this slowdown does not seem to be very great. But it's interesting to me that, you know, China managed to get COVID under control pretty quickly and its economy bounced back back very quickly. It came back ahead of Western nations. I'm wondering, you know, can it withstand sort of growing and slowing down, growing and slowing, slowing down if these large lockdowns remain necessary? And we've, we've talked to you on the show before about how China has very obviously chosen to tolerate uh, some economic discomfort in the uh, in the course of protecting its citizens. And it's determined that the way to protect them is by these lockdowns. And I'm just wondering if you, you know, how, how significant this economic slowdown is and if you see any signs the government plans to change its approach somehow.
3: Oh, I mean, we've, we've got to understand. I mean, people talk about human rights. I think the way of dealing with COVID is one of the best illustrations that China's got better human rights than the United States and the world. If China had the same death toll per per capita as the United States, over four million people would be dead. Instead, there's less than five, less than 5,000. So in other words, China's policy has saved four million lives Um, and no, they're not going to give up on it. they they're getting, If you look at the graphs, because I look at the COVID statistics every day, that the deaths, which is which which are t- daily deaths, which were tiny by the United States standard, in any anyway, are coming right down. China's getting the situation under control. Yes, yeah, so there was there would be a. China has decided that it's going to prioritise uh, saving people's lives over its short-term economic performance, whereas the United States decided to prioritise profits over people's lives. That's the real reality of the situation. And then the United States attempts to other, lecture other people on human rights. What a joke.
1: Yeah.
3: yeah. Right. Okay. Right. There, so therefore, yes, I, I think the, the data of April is unpleasant. And China's getting the situation under control. And its economy will bounce back. And China's economy will grow by significantly more than the United States during this period. So it's mm-hmm. both humanly better because they're saving, saving millions of lives, literally. Mm-hmm. And it'll be more successful economically but my you know i know what the result would be by the end of the year china will have grown more than the united states that
0: was author and economist john ross john we always appreciate your time thanks for joining us pleased to be here We're going to pivot now here on Political Misfits and get into some more domestic news. Uh, We are going to talk about the tweet battle of the weekend, Bezos versus Biden. We're going to talk about what John Durham is trying to prove in court about the origins of Russiagate. We'll talk about Michael Flynn coming for the FBI. We are going to talk a little bit about our COVID toll and how we got here. There is a whole lot to talk about. And joining me for all of it is Ted Rall. He's an award-winning political cartoonist, columnist and author. His latest book is The Stringer, and he also has a podcast called DMZ America. Uh, thanks for joining us, Ted. Thanks, Michelle. I also want to, you know, since, since I was talking with John uh, just now about um, COVID and COVID choices, I just wanted to alert you to my headline of the weekend. It's from an opinion piece, and it says, North Korea sees a virus explosion. Its missiles won't help. And it's just like, well, did ours? <laughs> <laughs> like... Ah, somebody. Yeah,
4: that's pretty funny. Uh, Yeah, well, you know, it's it's almost boring to be a progressive or a leftist in this country because the critique is always the same. Like, pretty much any time the United States uh, media or uh, official apparatus makes fun or criticizes any other country— it's inevitable that it's something that the U.S. does more and worse. Yeah. I mean, they, they really probably should pick something that they don't do really badly and, <laughs> and pick on other. I don't know what that would be, but but some other, you know, they, yeah. there's got to be something, you know, like maybe, you know, we you know, some other country really abuses begonias or something and we don't. And uh, I don't know. It's got to be a random thing. And uh, but but yeah, we're always like, you know, North Korea, they're so militaristic. Uh-huh. It's just
0: like mirrors exist just pick one up once just once in a while when you as you write this headline just <laughs> slow, lift up the mirror slowly and and just stare at it and see what it shows you uh the other sort of interesting um uh, Beginning today is the beginning of a major test of uh, Special Counsel John Durham's investigation into the origins of RussiaGate. Uh, this is the trial of Michael Sussman. He, uh, we've mentioned him on the show before. He's a longtime lawyer for Democrats, specifically for Hillary Clinton's campaign. He was the guy who went to the FBI with what he said could be important information, suggesting there was covert communication going on between the Trump organization and Alpha Bank, and via Alpha Bank, the Kremlin. Um, you know, Sussman said at the time, you know, just so you know, I'm not doing this on behalf of any client. Durham, in his case against Sussman, says this was a lie. And if Sussman had told the FBI he was at that moment working for Hillary Clinton, the investigation would have been undertaken differently. Now, Sussman has said he's not guilty, and his lawyers say, look, The FBI knows us. He knows I've been a a lawyer for high profile Democrats for a very long time. They knew exactly who they were dealing with. Um, And so to me, it's interesting because it kind of comes down to I think it's probably going to be difficult for Durham to actually prove a a crime here. This is at least some of the analysis I've seen. And it kind of comes back to, man, this was this was a press problem because. What Durham is saying is Sussman passed this information, which didn't lead anywhere, to the FBI precisely to generate leaks and damaging news stories about Trump during his campaign. And the problem is that that goes on all the time. I remember Matt Taibbi in in the midst of Russiagate saying, yeah, this is a tactic. We all know this is a tactic. Right. And that's why it is part of our job as reporters to recognize you, you know, these leaks and, and bear that in mind as we report on them. And so I just I wonder, you know, how, how difficult you think it's going to be for Durham to get a jury to to view this as a crime, if it is, you know, or if this is just honestly a, a sort of credulous press that really had had a, a huge role in, in this becoming the beast that it became from the very start.
4: It depends on how enthusiastic I mean, first of all, we have to differentiate between what Matt Taibbi said and uh, what Durham arguing, mm. you know, when, when you go and you try to plant BS in the press, it should be against the law, but it's not, mm. uh, you go and plant BS with, uh, the, the nation's, uh, premier federal law right. enforcement agency, uh, that's against the law.
3: Yeah. And,
4: um, and so the question here really is, uh, you know, you know, sort of like when they say uh, a prosecutor can get a, a jury to uh, indict a ham, uh, you know, a grand jury to indict a ham sandwich. Mm-hmm. I think a prosecutor can get a uh, a judge or a jury to to convict uh, based on this if they can prove it to be true. It depends on just how enthusiastic they are with the with the prosecution, um, and that's what it's going to hinge on. Um, you know, if the FBI has been duped uh, and uh, there's no there's the problem here is there's a classic division of interests within the FBI. you know the FBI isn't a monolith. Uh, there's career versus politicals uh, right. there's there's more um, there are people who are sort of uh, you know capital P patriotic, really believe in the institution, other people who are really just political hacks uh, or, you know with their own narrow uh, ideal you know republican or democratic ideology so it depends on who, you know, where they do they feel are they pissed? Do they feel used? Um, do do the right people? Do enough of the right people feel used within the uh, within the agency? If so, uh, th- this could be a big thing. Mm-hmm. But if the wrong, if it's the wrong people, not enough of the right people, then it'll fizzle. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And I guess it depends on how, you know, can you prove that Michael Sussman knew that this was garbage? Right. Or could it just be simply coincidence that he he has came across this sort of computer data about computer messaging and happens to be working for Democrats at the time? Right. That seems to be a a part of this.
4: See, I think that that's not the heaviest possible lift. Right. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, there's got first of all, you know, lawyers are uh, they, they document they leave more documentation than but then the Nazi Germans did at the end of 1945. I mean, they, mm-hmm. they write everything down. There's emails everywhere. Uh, there's memos everywhere. There's con- everything's recorded. Um, you know, someone said something. To, so if, and the, and the thing is, Sussman's not a rube, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, he's not, he, he knew what he was doing. And so the problem is, you know, if we're talking about like some street lawyer, that would be different. But this guy's a, an operative. He knew, yes. you know, it's kind of, it's just like, you just don't believe that he, you know, he's a lot of things. But he's probably not a dumbass, so you know I, I think that's you know he the, the stupidity but ignorance not, defense yeah. isn't gonna isn't gonna go far with him.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll see. I mean, this was you know this is the first uh, the first trial in relation to the the Durham investigation. So it will be interesting to see where it goes. The other. Uh, A big lawsuit that might have been launched today is by former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn. Um, He seems to have begun the process of filing a 50 million dollar claim against the FBI for malicious prosecution. I just have to mention that Flynn yesterday, he was addressing the Reawaken America tour which is also being called the QAnon tour uh, saying Donald Trump was still president. And it, I mean, we should just take a minute. He was saying like, Oh, I'll say it. Oh, love. Where's the camera. I want to say it right to the camera. He's still a pre- president. I don't see anybody wearing build back better caps. And I really feel like we should take a minute to marvel that not only was this guy Trump's <laughs> NSA, I mean, he was a general, he was the head of Obama's defense intelligence agency. I don't know. I mean, yeah. So I saw the, the, an image of the filing is being shared uh, by a fellow who does analysis for a bunch of news organizations. Uh, I have not seen it picked up yet in the mainstream. So, you know, I, my sense is that it, it is legitimate, but time will tell. But according to this filing and supplemental paperwork. Uh, Michael Flynn is saying there was a political motivation for his prosecution for lying to the FBI. Uh, Flynn, of course, of course, pleaded guilty to uh, lying to talking about uh, Israel with the Russian ambassador before Trump's inauguration. Uh, Trump pardoned him and the charges were dropped by the DOJ uh, because in the words of Bill Barr when he was attorney general, uh, he said, People sometimes plead to things that turn out not to be crimes, and the DOJ is not persuaded that this was material to any legitimate counterintelligence investigation. So it wasn't a crime. So is Michael Flynn about to be $50 million richer?
4: Uh, You know, if I were him, uh, I wouldn't be uh, planning out my uh, next big crypto buy. Uh, (laughs) He's going to be uh, I don't think this is gonna I don't think, first of all, he has a case And I think if he had a case, he wouldn't be able to prove his case. And what I mean is, um, it's going to be—it's almost impossible to sort of prove malicious uh, prosecution. But on top of that, against a a government agency like the FBI, I mean, discovery itself will be almost impossible. I mean, everything's classified. Uh, It's a government agency. They've written all the laws to protect themselves from having to, uh, you know, to be subpoenaed for documents. Uh, or, or have, uh, or, or put witnesses uh, under deposition, and, and in a way that they have to, you know, basically anything that could be could be argued, impinges upon national security, or, uh, or any kind of, you know, investig mm-hmm. investigation in progress, or classified file. You know, they they can just argue that and then just not answer. So, um, you know, it's I think his best outcome here is kind of like a Johnny Depp and Amber Heard outcome. Mm-hmm. Johnny Depp's going to lose this lawsuit. However, he regained his career and his public reputation. Mm-hmm. Um, the lawsuit doesn't matter. It's the ability to get your case heard. And, and uh, you know, right now, Michael Flynn has an atrocious public reputation. Uh, he's viewed, uh, even among those who are not against his, his uh, politics, as a clown. And so— yeah. um, I think, you know, this is an effort to make him look like a quote unquote very serious person again. I don't think that will work either, but I think that's what this is really about.
0: Yeah, hard to. I mean, if I would feel like step one on this is maybe not uh, continuing to say that Donald Trump is still president, right? If you want to stop looking <laughs> like a clown all over town, but I guess this is his way. We will see how that goes. Uh, the other thing that was very exciting to me over the weekend is uh, Jeff Bezos subtweeting the president and whining about the the new disinformation board and taxes. Uh, so Joe Biden had tweeted, "You want to bring down inflation." Let's make sure the wealthiest corporations pay their fair share. Bezos was like, "Uh, don't come at me and said the newly created disinformation board should review this tweet or maybe they need to form a new non sequitur board. Instead, raising corporate taxes is fine to discuss. Taming inflation is critical to, to discuss. Mushing them together is just misdirection. And I mean... This is what the administration has opened itself up to with this disinformation board that has now, of course, been downgraded to just a bunch of folks who get together and have lunch. I mean, you know, Jeff Bezos (laughs) kind. I mean, look, I I don't know what's the role of uh, taxing corporations on inflation, but it is very funny to see him coming out and saying that's not accurate. And I'm going to, you know, hoist you on your own petard with this uh, disinformation board. What did you make of it?
4: I, I don't normally say this. I'm on Team Bezos here. Uh, he's right. Um, mm. You know, he's right to make fun of the, disinfo- the, mis- the disinformation board, and he's right about the 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 argument. The argument is incredibly silly. Uh, I'm all for having corporations um, yeah. pay very very high rates of taxes. They really should. Uh, you know, Amazon is one of an Apple, for example. Just it's a joke that they don't pay any or they pay very low taxes. But it doesn't have any. It would not have any effect on inflation. Democrats have this. Uh mean that they use, and I think it costs them in terms of credibility, where they just say, you know, hey, if we had a fairer tax system, it would solve all problems. Uh, it, you know, but it, it really doesn't. For example, it would uh, create greater income, and uh, it would solve it it would do something for income inequality. No, it mm-hmm. wouldn't. Not at all. All it would do is give the Pentagon more money to buy missiles. Um, yeah. so you know income inequality has to be addressed in other ways. I mean, you know people don't make less money because they're taxed more on the upper end, right? mm-hmm. and people at the, at the low end don't make more money because people on the high end are taxed more. Yes, I understand that there's a net difference at the end of the year, but it's incremental. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, if you have, a, you have a major problem, uh, that's not going to solve it. It just seems more like a cash grab. You know, it's just like the tax policy should be changed. It should be, pro- it should be highly progressive, but that's a different argument.
0: Yeah, I mean, it comes back to it is, I think, significant to note that the the thing that will maybe affect inflation, the thing that will affect income inequality is what the government does with these taxes after it gets them. And no matter how much we seem to cry for it and push for it, they just seem to increasingly go to the Pentagon. Right. And so, yeah, money, more money coming into the government is not the same as more money coming out in the form of social programs or public health investments or infrastructure investments that are that are real investments in infrastructure and not just sort of corporate handouts and the like. It's it is funny, though, that the disinformation board has come into it. I wonder how much more we will actually hear from that board. I, I, Ted, you weren't here for this conversation last week, but uh, when Majorcas went before, I think it was a Senate, uh, some Senate committee hearing and was getting pretty grilled. I mean, by a bunch of Republicans, of course, because, you know, the left has really sort of ceded this ground to them, uh, probably because Biden is president and there's not uh, a lot to make in breaking ranks. Um, but, you know, he was like, no, 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 it's not, uh, we called it a board, but we just sort of get together. It's it's just a working group. It's, it's a group of buddies that we like to look at, you know, we like to look at information sometime.
4: Yeah, well, imagine if imagine if the same thing had been created under Trump, right? I mean, oh,
0: the end of the world. I mean, absolutely, yeah. Um, Speaking of Trump, there was a horrifying report on the meatpacking industry and COVID that came out of Congress last week that I wanted to talk about. Um, It's On the consequences of keeping meatpacking plants open through the pandemic, including uh, through the invocation of the Defense Production Act, Uh, ProPublica and others have have covered uh, some of the material in this report. But it basically shows how, first of all, the plants were warned that their working conditions made workers vulnerable during a pandemic, even before covid existed. Right. Um, They were also told early on during the pandemic that their factories were vectors for the virus. And I have a horrible quote for you, Ted. A JBS executive received an April 2020 email from a doctor in a hospital near its uh, Cactus, Texas facility that said 100 percent of all COVID-19 patients we have in the hospital are either direct employees or family members of your employees and your employees will get sick and might die if your factory continues to be open and yet despite that uh the the heads of the us you know the few us meat uh companies right the the big i think four who manage all of our meat processing they invented a shortage to pressure the government to allow them to keep making money. And this invention, I say, is because you, you have simultaneous statements um, in public by the heads of some of these companies going, well, we're on the edge of not having any meat in the United States, while also instructing uh, members of their companies to reassure uh, their their buyers outside the U.S. that no, 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 we, there's plenty. There's plenty for export. Um and so researchers found that by July 2020, 6 to 8 of all coronavirus cases in the US were tied to packing plant outbreaks. By October 2020, community spread from the plants had generated 334,000 illnesses and 18,000 COVID-related deaths. And so the report raises a whole bunch of issues, right? You you have the USDA apparently working with the industry to help pressure workers and not the other way around, not to support them. You have, you know, within the USDA reported battles between political appointees and um, career staff there. You, of course, have a whole discussion of our appetite for meat and the conditions under which it is grown and processed. And so, you know, there's a lot of different roads to take here, Ted. I, I don't know which one horrified you the most.
4: You know, I think it's the abuse for me, the abuse of the uh, Defense Authorization Act. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is this is supposed to be you mentioned the appetite for meat. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a carnivore. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, I, I like me a burger. Um, I just had hot dogs for lunch here in New York. <laughs> um, I, but, you know, I'm sorry. Meats are not an essential services, a service. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, the. If we had a shortage of meat in this country, it would not matter. We, no one would starve to death. Uh, in a, what they should, you know, if they this this is used, this law exists in order to address emergency needs. Oh, mm-hmm. I don't know. In the early days of the spring of twenty twenty, maybe uh, production of KN ninety five masks, for example. Sure,
2: that could have been uh, or,
4: one, or or, or ventilators, mm-hmm. or. I think I think fuel, arguably, because you know, hey, you can't move masks without fuel, mm-hmm. uh, truck drivers, whatever. Um, but the point is there's no argument here. It's I'm sorry, meats just not essential. And even if you're from Texas, it's not. And so um, these plants should have been closed or they should have operated at a capacity that allowed uh, proper social distancing and proper measures to be taken uh, at the time. Lots of other businesses. That were arguably more essential to the American economy. We're, we're cl- so I think for me it's you know it's kind of like this act goes back to I believe just before World War II, mm-hmm. and it's kind of like saying like during World War II, hey we have to keep you know we have to keep slaughtering uh, cows in Texas in order to power the war machine. No, we don't. We need tanks. We need weapons. We need bullets. um yeah. you know we need planes. Uh, that's what this is for. So. It's kind of what bugs me is the idea that someone from the the Cattlemen's Association or whatever called someone in uh, in, you know, in Austin and or someone in D.C. at USDA and said, you know, like, we need to make this. uh, We need an exception. We need to use this. We need to stay open. Find us a law that allow us to do it. We don't want to change anything they don't even care that people are dying. I, mean there's, the I whole, mean, there's a bit of a Sinclair Lewis thing going on here. It's ugh. just so gross. The whole thing is
0: disgusting. I think we've found our thing that maybe we can criticize other countries for legitimately. And I, I bet no other country in the world was as good at protecting its hot dogs as the United <laughs> States. Was that? Was that, Ted, that is the only industry that I can remember. Getting this kind of protection during the pandemic, which is really, it really is disgusting, as you say. If you want to eat meat, go for it, but it is not, it is not a necessity, and the amount of it isn't. It's not like we were going to run out of meat completely, you know. It's just no, it's no, a. We it's it says something about us as a nation and certainly it says something about, you know, the um the role of of lobbying and industry in our different government agencies that are supposed to be overseeing the regulation of those industries. I mean, I know that you can't have a you know, you can't have a USDA that is hostile to agriculture, but it shouldn't be that they get to team up to force workers to go into work under, under you know, conditions that threaten their very lives. Like, that's not that's not how government is supposed to function vis-a-vis these different industries.
4: You know, I'm not even so sure, Michelle, that I agree that the USDA shouldn't be hostile. Um, you know, I think it should be more antagonistic. Right. I mean, you know, we hear all the time, for example, in the discussions about healthcare, that it's important for all the stakeholders to have a seat at the table. So that's how they justify Having you know the big Hartford insurance companies uh, helping to write like the Affordable Care Act, um, but that you know I'm not I don't know that those people need a, ta- a seat at the table at all. They're the people who are supposed to be it should be in te- it should be adversarial, don't you think?
0: Yes, I guess I mean it shouldn't be in the business of of trying to crush agriculture in the U.S. <laughs> but uh, to uh, yeah, regulate no. it, <laughs> to yeah, no, faci- facilitate the flourishing of an industry that is well regulated and safe is what I'll say. <laughs>
4: Which, yeah, in a well-regulated and safe industry is, a you know, that improves its viability, right, economically. Right. So,
0: and yeah. is, is going to have to be, a, as you say, a, co- a constant fight against industry, certainly in the situation we find ourselves.
4: Yeah, no, the problem is that the other it, There's the problem is there's so many other stakeholders, you know, who are not at the table, right? I mean, I bet I'd be surprised if anyone from OSHA or um, the CDC was in that phone call.
0: I you mean, are, are migrant workers getting a seat at the table for, you know, in, in any of these negotiations? I'm I'm not sure. I'm not sure their representatives are heard.
3: <laughs> right. You know, good point. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, we can end this conversation with a little bit of good news. I was uh, cheered to see that activists in California have got enough signatures to get an $18 minimum wage on its balance. Uh, in November, it would be an incremental increase to $18 in 2026 when God knows how much uh, a loaf of bread will cost. But I guess it is something, um, you know, I'm thinking, Ted, we saw the campaign that Uber launched to block its drivers from being classified as employees in the last election cycle in California. And so I'm wondering if people are are looking at this and excited about this as a possibility, what they should have learned from that fight about how to succeed at this one.
4: Yeah, well, no, it is. It is good news. It is not big good news. It is slow good news. And uh, you know, it's it's by the time if this passes, by the time the 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 minimum wage goes up to eighteen bucks in California, after lots of hue and cry from industry as usual, um, you know, it'll of course, obviously, it'll they'll be in dire need for it to be twenty five dollars an hour. So we're always running way behind here. I mean, you know, I'm one of my favorite. Statistics is that if the federal inflation rate, uh the federal minimum wage had increased along with the official inflation rate since 1970, uh, it would be now twenty-eight or twenty-nine dollars an hour, right? So people just don't they just sort of don't keep focus on how much they've lost. Um I think you know it's it's these these fights are really important because they change, they lift a lot of boats, they change a lot of lives, and they're really worth fighting for. I mean, the Mm -hmm. Uber Case had reper- uh, repercussions way beyond Uber. Mm-hmm. Uh, for, for example, when I sued the LA Times, part of my uh, lawsuit was a wrongful termination lawsuit. And the LA Times argued that I wasn't an employee because I was a 1099, not a W 2 employer. Uh, and uh, I received, and so because of Uber, I was able to argue that I was wrongfully terminated. That was a part of my lawsuit. Um, you know, and I, a lot of people were affected by this beyond just drivers. And I I think it's important for, uh, you know, working people to band together and fight long and hard and, uh, you know, just understand that, like, the victory is going to have major – it's possible and it could have really sweeping effects on society. Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and bearing that in mind and bearing in mind the consequences of the last vote, yeah, I I hope that'll get more people on board with more uh, dedication that was Ted Rawl, award-winning political cartoonist, columnist, and author. You can find more from him through his latest book, The Stringer, and through listening to the DMZ America podcast. Ted, always great to talk to you. Thanks for joining us.
4: Likewise. Thank you.
0: You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C., and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here uh, having a conversation that is really uh, sadly timely. I want to talk about some of the recent reports on the mental and emotional crisis so much of this country finds itself in and the physical consequences we're seeing. Uh, One report last week was about a surge in adolescent depression and other mental health issues that's swamping our capacity to treat them. Another was about a new record in overdose deaths. Uh, Joining me for this conversation is Dr. Yolandra Hancock. She's a board-certified pediatrician and an obesity medicine specialist. Dr. Hancock, thank you for joining us.
5: Thank you so much for having me.
0: I mean, it is just really tragic to be having this conversation after, uh, you know, an 18 year old murdered eight people uh, or sorry, murdered 10 people over the weekend. And I mean, uh, regardless of how clear headed he was at the time or uh, how sane or insane he might be proven to be, you know, he is it, it, it does make you wonder, you know, where where were people who were supposed to be sort of uh, uh, watching this young person and seeing how he got to that state, right? Which is not to express sympathy for him, but just to go, how did this, how did that happen, right? How did he get there when he's supposed to be under the watchful eyes of not only parents, but, but a whole school system. Um, but before we get to that, uh, Dr. Hancock, cause, because we have you, I, I wanted to talk about this, um, this baby formula shortage and just ask uh, to get a report from you about what's happening with that among your patients and your community and what parents are, are asking for.
5: Um, they're stressed. I will, I will tell you that, especially for those parents who have children that are on a specialized formula. Um, there are very few options for them specifically for babies who are on regular formula. There are some options. You can get the generic versions of the top three brands that exist in this country. Um, but it's, it's a very stressful time, especially for uh, parents of those with babies under the age of six months.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I have seen reports that it is possible that the plants that were uh, the plant that was shut down will be able to restart production soon. But again, you know, I mean, uh, it's it really speaks to our priorities right now that we are trying to push more funding overseas while we uh, literally are running out of food for babies in the country. Um, let's get into the, the story that I wanted to ask you about when it came out last week, and that's this surge in adolescent depression and distress that, according to a Times report, is swamping pediatricians. Uh, the New York Times says there are a few factors driving this crisis. First is an increase in psychiatric issues among teens. And the second is a lack of psychiatrists who are focused on teens and a lack of access to those ones that do exist. And so what it says is this combination of factors leaves pediatricians who are trained and and used to dealing with physical ailments rather than mental ones trying to help kids in crisis. And, uh, you know, The Times reports that over the last 30 years, teen pregnancy, alcohol and cigarette and drug use have fallen, but anxiety, depression, suicide and self-harm has have soared. And uh, the American Academy of Physicians is saying mental health disorders have surpassed physical conditions as the most common issues causing impairment and limitation among adolescents. And I want to ask if if you are seeing this and if you have an idea why.
5: Absolutely. You know, as a pediatrician myself, I have seen particularly uh, coming out of the pandemic, more children being diagnosed specifically with depression and anxiety. We know that there, during, throughout the pandemic, we've seen at least a 40% increase in both of those diagnoses. Even prior to the pandemic, we were in the middle of a mental health crisis. Here in Prince George's County, where I reside and practice, there were more children showing up in the emergency department for mental health issues than any other health crisis. More children hospitalized due to mental health issues, even beyond asthma, which is a top diagnosis for children in terms of a reason for hospitalization. And I think a lot of it speaks to one the space in which we currently exist in this country, especially if you are a Black or Brown child. Mm-hmm. Um, we've just experienced ten or ten people, uh, mostly Black, losing their lives because of hate. Over the pandemic, we saw George Floyd, Breonna Taylor. We've seen Ahmaud Arbery. We we keep seeing, hearing these names: Michael Brown. All of these people dying at the hands of people who are paid to protect us. Mm-hmm. So there's this concern that we are at risk, and that risk puts us at an elevated level of stress. Mm-hmm. And
0: it's I mean, and not to mention school shootings, you know what I mean? I imagine it is kind of getting harder to tell, uh, you know, to tell, especially as you say, young black or brown uh, people, black or brown children. Oh, no, everything's fine. Don't worry. Like, actually, you're safe. Your family is safe. You, you'll be safe at your school. You know, there's there's less reason to actually accept those things as true. And yet. You know, referencing this American Academy of uh, Pediatrics report, uh, it said pediatricians need to take on a larger role in addressing mental health problems, but the majority don't feel prepared to do so, which to me seems fair enough, right? If you are like a family practice doctor or a pediatrician thinking you are going to be dealing with asthma and other physical um, issues, I don't know how much training you have in mental health. And so I want to ask you, You know, how much of the burden of managing mental health should fall to pediatricians, especially considering what they are able to do is probably only prescribe drugs. They're not able to provide kids with a, a pathway to therapy or to be therapists themselves. And while, of course, I think there is a an important place for um, psychiatric drugs in treating mental health uh, issues, therapy, talk therapy, behavioral therapy, all of that stuff has also got to be in the mix. And so what do you think? How, how do you feel about medically trained pediatricians being forced to carry this burden more and what the impact of it is if it's sort of like quick prescriptions for drugs rather than access to therapy?
5: What I will tell you is that as a pediatrician, we have we have been prepared. It's what we have been doing. Have we been mm-hmm. in a formal way? No. Are we offering therapy? No. But ADHD evaluations have been in the pediatrician's office since at least the 20 years that I've been practicing. I think it really okay. speaks more to the structure of how we practice, when insurance companies only reimburse for a fifteen-minute visit, that mm-hmm. we have to crowd our schedule. You can't take care of mental health issues in fifteen minutes. At minimum, requires thirty just to get the child comfortable enough to be able to ask some of those hard-hitting questions. And I really think it's a, the structure of how medicine is practiced. And to your point, continuing medical education. Like I have, I'm required for my license to undergo opioid continuing medical education. I'm not dealing with opioid overdose in my pediatric practice as much as I am the mental health crises that then lead to opioid use and addiction. So we really have to talk about continuing medical education and appropriate structure of of our space so that we can have enough time to connect with parents and children to talk through these issues. Because it isn't just anxiety and depression, it's all of the other chronic stressors that then facilitate the manifestation of what qualifies as these true mental health diagnoses. Mm-hmm.
0: I also the other issue that is raised in this Times report is that there simply is a lack of um, psychiatrists to focus on dealing with adolescents and that the ones who do exist are concentrated in wealthier areas and maybe uh, work outside of insurance networks. And so I have two questions like one. Why? Why? Why is there, I mean, well, is there, and if so, why a, a lack of professionals that focus on dealing with teens? And then why do so many mental health professionals choose to opt out of accepting insurance? This is something I've run up against in my life, and, and it's, it's a real bummer. It's a real, it is a real barrier to access.
5: I hear you. First and foremost, anything dealing with children in medicine, you're going to get paid less. So if huh. why Why? Interest- Because this country doesn't prioritize children. That's why.
0: Wow.
5: I had no idea. Wow. Okay. Pediatric health is paid less. So a pediatric nephrologist is paid less than an adult nephrologist. (gasps) Psychiatrist is reimbursed at a higher rate than a pediatric uh, psychiatrist. And it's the way that things work. Children don't vote. Children don't um, lobby. Ugh. That reason they are not covered as well. It's the reason why education is the way that it is. If it was up to if it was up to kids, this, if it, those of us who advocate for kids, things would be different. That's why we need a federal children's cabinet. Mm-hmm. In terms of why why folks go the way of private um, private pay, so fee for service, not taking insurance. It's the same reason why a lot of physicians, other physicians are doing the same thing. It's because insurance is not paying them sufficiently for the work that they do. As a psychiatrist, they may spend 30 to 60 minutes with a client. It will get paid $65. But if someone pays out of pocket, that could be a $250, $300 visit, right? Yeah. What we really have to think through how are we compelling insurance to cover the cost of these visits so that it actually makes sense. And it isn't that psychiatrists are trying to drive around in Maserati, they're literally trying to keep their lights on. Mm -hmm. They're trying to keep their practices running and you cannot keep your practice running with the level of reimbursement that insurance is currently paying psychiatrists. And it also really
0: ignores the fact that a relationship with a therapist, if it's going to be a fruitful one, is very personal, you know, and of course, you know, uh, having a relationship with your with your family doctor is also important. But like to some degree, you know, you can kind of go to any dentist, like you can kind of go to any osteopath, but you can't just go to any therapist and make progress. And I think, you know, it comes back to this idea of how our entire uh, medical system is structured to strip away anything that is personal and just try try to make it like an assembly machine, you know, patching up parts and moving you on to the next stop. And it simply doesn't work.
5: Right. So I completely agree with you, it, especially when it comes to mental health. It's such a very intimate relationship. It requires a therapist and a psychiatrist. And I, give, I tip my hat to psychiatrists. But what I will tell you is that they do not spend the same level of time with a client that a psychologist or a therapist does. The oh, no. Yeah. It's different. Right. And so it has to be this full package. And mind and body are not separate. Mind affects body, body affects mind and it needs to all be integrated and in, because we're all the same we're the same people our minds affect what happens in terms of diabetes and all these other health issues mm-hmm. and all of those health issues also impact our mental health.
0: Yeah and I wonder what is the impact as as we were talking about at the beginning if you have pediatricians who are like I cannot give you talk therapy but I can give you Zoloft or Wellbutrin or whatever I I wonder what you think the result is of treating these issues that I think in a lot of cases c- could be really improved by like behavioral uh, all the different kinds of talk therapy that exist that are effective but instead going well there i think we got a pill for that or that's all i'm able to give you like what what kind of consequences are we setting ourselves up for
5: it's putting a bandage on a hemorrhage Mm-hmm. And it also impacts how people see physicians. If all I am seen as is a p- pill pusher, because I didn't talk to you about the fact that you lost three family members during COVID. Mm-hmm. That's why you're depressed. I'm going to give you this this antidepressant without dealing with the underlying issue. And if we do not, especially in our adolescent population, if we do not help them develop the skills necessary to work through some of the trauma that they've experienced, not only will it impact their ability to achieve their optimal health, both in physical and mental health. It will impact their parenting. It will impact their economic development. Every single other aspect of health will be impacted by their mental health because we collectively, as the grown-ups in their lives, did not help coach them through as physicians and everyone else mm-hmm. to the point where they can actually manage to do these things. Mm-hmm. Executive functioning does not mature until the age of 26 or 27. And so if all I'm going to do is prescribe a medication, it's a disservice to that child.
0: mm hmm mm-hmm. I think also this connects to this um, uh, overdose story that was also reported last week. We learned more Americans had died of overdoses in 2021 than in any other year. It was up 15 percent from 2020, uh, more than 100,000 people. The vast majority are due to opioids, but experts are also warning of a wave of methamphetamine deaths. And so, you know, the factors causing this trend that have been identified by the people researching it loss of access to treatment, social isolation, and a more potent drug supply. Um, but what is also really sad is that the people The Washington Post spoke to for this report said, uh, we see no reason to think that these numbers won't keep going up. And, you know, when you are talking about access to treatment and social isolation, hey, those are things that we have the power to change. And, uh, you know, I, I wanted to get your thoughts on, on you know, what we actually could address right now that is causing these over overdose deaths?
5: Absolutely. I think the most important is to really address the loneliness, the isolation that people have felt, particularly over these past two years. There was a recent report that said that 70% of people who reported loneliness and isolation as the top contributing factor to their mental health issues. We really have to pay attention to the direct impact of this pandemic, but we also have to think even before that, what are we doing as a society to connect to each other, mm-hmm. love on each other? I don't think I've ever experienced in my lifetime more vitriol and more just a level of tenseness within this country. Like there are people snapping at each other, shooting each other over minor fallouts. It causes a lot of stress. We've mm-hmm. seen young people, uh, prominently in social media and regular media who have killed themselves. We just lost a young um, adolescent in my home state of Louisiana, cheerleader at Southern University, Mm. who did suicide because of her perceived strength, right? So we don't give our children space to be able to talk through it. Instead, they have to go to other means. Mm -hmm. They're self-injuring or they're, they're using these drugs that are much more available because of things like social media. Right now, you can go on Instagram. You can go on TikTok and actually access some of these drugs that in my generation, when I was their age, we didn't have that same access. Mm-hmm. If we do not provide them with the healthy ways of managing through their stress, mm-hmm. their anxiety and their depression, they're going to opt for other things that are much more readily available. And that's why we're seeing these numbers as they are and why we will continue to see them go up if we do not prioritize, one, our children and our youth, and two, if we do not prioritize mental health.
0: And I mean, it's sad because it's not I mean, the the world can feel like a hopeless place right now, but the rest of the world is not as hopeless as the U.S. I looked up some statistics on drug deaths. Uh, It's from my sort of initial look around. The only country that has a comparable scale of uh, deaths due to drugs or alcohol is actually Russia, where it doesn't have as many drug related deaths. But alcohol deaths are uh, their alcohol deaths are about on the scale of our drug problem. But when you look at other, you know, nations that we might consider uh, sort of our peers and our um, cultural sort of, uh, we have a, a strong cultural affinity with, you know, our rate of drug deaths is more than double that of England and Wales. It's more than double that of just the EU states in general. And so, again, you know, People in other countries are drinking and smoking cigarettes and smoking pot and doing drugs, but we are somehow doing it in a way that is way more destructive. And I wonder, you know, if this might be beyond the realm of public health or if there is a public health way to get it, as you say, to get at this loneliness and despair.
5: Right. I think it's smack dab in the wheelhouse of public health. When you think about the countries that you just listed, they have a much more significant investment in social services and social structure. When a woman in France can take an entire year off before having to go back into work and we're still fighting for paid leave of six weeks. Like Mm -hmm. this is where we are in this country. And when you think about that, what is the level of stress? If we just think about maternal health. And we talk a lot about African-American women and dying, trying to have babies. We just look at that part of it. Mm-hmm. In this country, it's a fight for six weeks of paid leave. And then after that, the stress that you go into and attempt to breastfeed. And then we talk about the linking back into formula stories, mm-hmm. Breastfeed. Well, guess what? If I had to go back to work after six weeks, and this isn't a breast family working environment, that adds on to my level of stress and how I'm going to feed my child. Whereas in France, you take a whole year, both moms and dads get time off to help raise up this baby over the year. In Europe, you get weeks of vacation time. In this country, you have to fight for just a weekend.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's that's absolutely true. That was Dr. Yolanda Hancock. She's a pediatrician. She's an obesity medicine specialist. Dr. Hancock, where should our listeners go to find more of your work?
5: You can find me on social media at Ask Dr. Yola on web. You can find me at www.AskDrYola.com.
0: Thank you so much for joining us again. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come back with some last headlines for you. We'll be back in just a minute. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte, and I have a few last headlines for you. Some things that I think we are going to be talking about later in the week, I think. And one of those is the U.S. Supreme Court today. Further undermining campaign finance restrictions, I guess uh, it was Senator Ted Cruz who was behind this particular battle. Uh, it struck down as a free speech violation uh, a two hundred fifty thousand dollar cap on the amount of money political candidates can be reimbursed after an election for personal loans to their own campaign. <laughs> so I think we will be talking about this in the context of how campaign finance is regulated, and you know how much how much we should be linking money and speech and, uh, you know, but in the meantime, congratulations, Ted. Good for you. Um, Also happening tomorrow is going to be the first hearing on UFOs since the 1960s. The House Subcommittee on Counterterrorism, Counterintelligence and Counterproliferation is going to hold a hearing. And uh, the guy who's going to be holding it, chairing it, Representative Andre Carson, uh, has said someone has to do it. So he's going to oversee the hearing. Um, Pentagon Press Secretary John Kirby was asked about this meeting during a briefing last week. He said he didn't want to get ahead of it. But that we are absolutely committed to being as transparent as we can with the American people and with members of Congress about our perspectives on this and what we're going to do to have a better process for identifying these phenomena, analyzing that information in a more proactive, coordinated way, blah, blah, blah. But I mean, this I think this is pretty exciting. This, of course, follows that 2021 report that was sort of swamped in, in the midst of uh, the COVID pandemic. But the report by the D- director of national intelligence uh, investigating 144 reports from government sources uh, over la- about 16 years about pre- potential interactions with uh, unidentified aerial phenomena. So that's going to be interesting tomorrow and we will see if we can get someone to tell us a little bit more about uh, when we might start to, you know, meet, meet aliens ourselves just for fun. Uh, I also wanted to give a little shout out to Local Teen, Uh, an Oakland teenager, is being credited with saving a Pearl Jam concert after Pearl Jam's drummer got COVID-19. So a high school senior named Kai got to sit down and play drums with Pearl Jam uh, relatively recently to get the band out of a tight spot when its, uh, its drummer came down with COVID and couldn't attend the venue. If you needed also more Elon Musk news, um, Elon Musk over the weekend said that Twitter had told him he violated an NDA that he had signed with them about uh, their social media platforms, uh, their checks on automated automated users. Right. So when when Twitter went looking for bots, I guess something in an NDA covered uh, what that sample size was and and how that was going to be undertaken. And apparently Elon Musk was told that he had violated it by revealing that the sample size was 100. Who knows if any of this is true, right? Who knows if 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 this is true or if this is just intended to be another way for him to maybe back out of this deal, whether he intended it to uh, ever take place in the first place. But if you were hankering for Elon Musk news, there you go. We still can't get out of a single show these days without talking about Elon Musk and Twitter. We're going to get out now. Uh, We're out of time here. I want to say thanks to our engineers and to all of our guests. And uh, thanks from me, I'm Michelle Whitty, for listening. John and I will talk to you tomorrow.